Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Tim Millay, an orthopedic spine surgeon from Iowa who will help us understand back pain and, as a bonus, maybe even pains in the neck. Ah, He's not talking about either of us, of course, when you say that. I hope not. But first, we're <laughs> going to do a primer, as we say in medicine, on all things spine. You know, the head bones connected to the neck bone and the neck bones connected to the backbone. Well, there's actually a lot of neck bones and a lot of backbones. <laughs> and they're all connected. And they're all connected, thanks be to God. Otherwise, we would be like jellyfish. <laughs> so the spine, you know, how does it work? Well, there's, you know depending how you look at it, you know, there's three main sections to the spine with two bonus sections down below. And the top section would be the neck. The neck has seven little segments we call vertebrae. So one is a vertebra. So there's, there's seven in the neck between the skull and the top vertebra that's connected to ribs. And since there's 12 sets of ribs, uh, there are 12 vertebrae in what's called the thoracic section of your back. So you've got the neck, the thoracic spine, which are each connected to ribs. And then below that, you've got the heavy lifters. So if you know or were a cheerleader and you had to be on the bottom of that cheerleader pyramid. You'd be the lumbar region. You would be the lumbar region. I love it. Chris <laughs> is with me on this. And there's five large, strong, strong, strong lumbar vertebrae that do most of the lifting. Now, you know, in medicine, we love our lingo. So for the cervical section on TV, they'll say a C-spine. Or, or on medical shows, they'll say a, a C-spine series where they're looking if there's a fracture in the neck. I don't think we usually say the T-spine for thoracic, but we often say L4 and L5. I've heard that on a lot of TV shows. Right. And that's the fourth and fifth lumbar vertebrae. The upper lumbar vertebrae is number one. The lowest one is number five, which sits on top of your sacrum, sacrum, which has nothing to do with sacred, at least that I know of. And if you've ever had an epidural in labor or maybe a spinal block for surgery or a C-section, most commonly that needle went in between L4 and L5, just on top of the sacrum. Right. In between each of the spine, is a disc. And that disc is flexible and has actually a, a, a jelly-like center to it that flexes as you move and a really hard cord-like outer piece that stays in place. Unless, of course, you get the dreaded slipped disc. Now, the lumbar spine sits on the sacrum, which is really made up of five fused vertebrae, uh, which essentially in adulthood is, is one solid bone. And then the sacrum interacts with parts of the hip called the ilium, or we say the sacroiliac joint. Or we like to say SI joint. SI joint. So those are all a lot of terms that we use. And normally the spine, thank God, is not a, a straight up and down thing like an obelisk, like the Washington Monument. It's got curves to it. So the cervical spine is kind of curved inward. The thoracic spine is kind of curved outward. And the lumbar spine is kind of curved inward, just a little bit. Too much is a bad thing. Too little is a bad thing. And the spine is there not only for support, but it protects something very important. What's inside? What is inside? Not what's in your wallet, but what's in your... <laughs> what's in your spine? What's in your vertebrae? Well... It's protecting the spinal cord, which is really an elongation of the brain. It's still considered part of the central nervous system. And that's what, when we talk about spinal cord injury from maybe a diving accident or a, a motor vehicle accident, we're talking about an injury to the brain, but it's a part of the brain that exists maybe in the cervical spine or, th or the thoracic spine. And it stops just before the beginning of the lumbar spine. Yeah, it's interesting. You'd think that the spinal cord would go all the way down through this canal that's made by the vertebrae, but it doesn't. It stops toward the top. And then there's these little separate nerve roots that come off and that go out on either side of the body, out from the sides of the vertebrae, called uh, nerve roots. And these roots, actually for the lumbar and sacral part of the spine, begin way up in the spinal canal opposite your upper 
lumbar vertebrae. It's got kind of an interesting name. Those group of nerve roots is called the cauda equina, which means horse's tail. We do love our words. Yes, and our horses, apparently. Now, when we talk bones and nerves in the same proximity, that's probably going to lead to the discussion of pain. And it'd be incomplete. Any any discussion about the spine without talking about pain would be really short-sighted, wouldn't it? And we've got some pretty alarming statistics about pain related to the spine. That one out of every 25 patients seeing a doctor in America today is doing it because of low back pain. It's the fifth most common reason that people go into a doctor. It's just back pain uh, of any sort, but probably the most common location would be the lower back. You know, that surprises me. If I just think about everyone that walks into my office, it's not back pain. But if we go global and every single visit in America, the vast, not the vast majority, but a large number are going because of pain in their spine. So we thought it was time to cover this topic, which is so important. And we found like probably the nicest spine surgeon in the world to interview tonight. This guy is wonderful. You'll like listening to Tim Malay. But it's said that at any one time worldwide, one out of 10 people suffers from lower back pain. And you know, the number of we Americans who are experiencing back pain, it sure feels like it's on the rise. Some 30% of people over the age of 65 have experienced low back pain in just the last couple of months. So that number is astonishing when you think of how many people are hurting. And the number of MRI scans, that's magnetic resonance imaging scans, of the lower back has increased four times between 94 and 2005, probably even more since then because back pain keeps going up. But what is amazing is only 1% of the time do these expensive scans find the cause of the pain. I read that on the internet. It might not be true. <laughs> so we'll confirm things like that with our guest today. Uh, it, and it's fascinating that 40% of adults say that back pain impacts their everyday activities, including sleep. Uh, it's amazing. Just when I'm operating on patients, thank God I have tables that can bend and swivel and tilt in many different directions and pillows that we can put. But it's amazing how many patients can't get comfortable lying down. And then I know, I mean, don't a certain amount of pregnant women suffer from back pain? I would say the overwhelming majority of pregnant women at some point in their pregnancy uh, have pain in their back, neck, lumbar spine. Now, we talk about it being uh, caused from stress and other things. Most of my patients tell me it's their husbands that are causing their pain. Um, <laughs> but maybe that was the pain in their neck. I'm not sure. Um, we probably are good for a lot of different types of pain. But, you know, the reason we see so much on television and commercials, whether it's beds or treatments or things about a pain, is because there's, there's a lot of money tied to back pain, isn't there? Oh, my goodness. And in fact, as I hope we'll get into chronic narcotic medicine given for back pain was a huge contributor to the opioid crisis that we recently covered mm. on this show because doctors wanting their patients to be pain-free gave opioid pills. Right. And we Americans, it said, spend at least $50 billion, that's with a B, annually on back pain. That's why there's so many products and so many people trying to solve back pain because there is so much money involved in pain in, in the back. And it sounds like the longer you sit at your job, and we're going to cover this, the more likely you'll have back pain versus standing at your job. And back pain, this was a real shocker to me. There are a certain proportion of people who commit suicide because of pain, and the number one cause of pain-related suicide is due to back pain. That's remarkable. That's sort of hard to process when you think about it. Yes. I mean, it just must be so horrible. Uh, I can't imagine it, but I haven't been there. Well, before we go to our break, we're going to have a question related to the spine. What else would there be? And, and I thought we would go to a little different area than humans. I thought we'd go to the zoo. And I remember when my oldest daughter had her first birthday, we took her to a zoo in Colorado Springs where they have a place where you can actually feed the giraffes. So the giraffe is actually on a lower level and you can feed the giraffe. And not unexpectedly, it, <laughs> it terribly frightened my young daughter. Uh, but the giraffe has a very 
long neck. We just told you that the neck of a human being has seven vertebrae in it. So the trivia question is simply this. How many vertebrae are in the very extremely, extensively long neck of the giraffe? You're going to have to hang around till near the end of the show to find out the answer. Please don't Google it. That'll take away all the fun. We'll be right back here on Dr. Doctor from the stations of Redeemer Radio in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to today's guest on Dr. Doctor. We have with us to discuss back pain, Dr. Tim Malay, who's been married for 40 years, has five children, 10 grandchildren. He's an orthopedic spine surgeon in Davenport, Iowa. But for four years before medical school, he practices as a physical therapist. This is going to really help to inform our conversation well. He's been a member of the Catholic Medical Association since 2012. That's the same year I joined. He's a member of multiple committees. He's the president of his guild. He's the state director in Iowa for the Catholic Medical Association. And he even received an honorary doctor of humane letters from St. Ambrose University in 2018. Tim Malay, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you are somebody who operates on people's backbones, and that's because there's probably a lot of back pain. What are the most you know, common ways, Tim, that you see patients uh, get into trouble with back pain? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, well, maybe an evolutionary problem as well. If you look at the uh, healthcare system in the U.S., uh, somewhere in the range of 80 to 90% of people are going to see somebody, somebody at some level in healthcare for back pain in their adult life. So wow. tremendous, tremendous job security, but <laughs> one of the secret, one of the secrets is that the majority of them would get better within a period of maybe up to about four to six weeks or so. The majority of them would get better. Just keep moving, just keep doing things. And um, you, you mean but, with no medical care, no drugs? Correct. Yeah, yeah. By and large, it's you know. That, granted, there there's uh, uh, kind of the over under, uh, specifically in regards to just low back pain. Nothing radiating in the legs. No neurologics. You know, no weakness. Things like that. If it's just pain in the back, and it can be with or without an injury, um, I call it desert island therapy. If you put the patient <laughs> on a desert island and Check on them in six weeks. More than half of them are going to say, "I don't need you. Thanks for thanks for coming." And 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 that that'll be the end of it. That sounds but like I, my it sounds like my mentor in medical school's uh, dictum when it came to dermatology. <laughs> he said, "Hurry, <laughs> treat it quickly before it gets better." <laughs> exactly right. You know, and and it is. You know, I don't want to leave the impression that it's you know you spend the first six weeks just entertaining the patient till they get better. I find one of some of my favorite appointments are people that. You know, they want to be seen. It's their first time episode, and it's like talking them off the ledge. You know, they, they are they're just concerned that we're dealing with some life threatening paralysis threatening problem, and and it really isn't. And and I mean that's that's really when you, when you can treat somebody successfully with reassurance, that's to me part of the essence of of practicing medicine as well. That's the wow. that's the compassion part of medicine. Give no. me the information. Reassurance. Now, Tim, we didn't say at the beginning, uh, I think we're, we probably jumped right to pain, but as a spine surgeon, is, is what percentage of your time do you spend dealing with pain? Oh, I mean, if, if, if uh, it is very, very uncommon for me to see someone with a spine issue that is not pain-related, um, there are some. If I have somebody come, I, it's, we'll see people with a herniated disc in the lower back that um, have a foot drop. But if you really just sit down, keep your mouth shut and let them talk, they will give you a story in the typical story, a classic herniated disc story. It's not the kablooey kind of incident where a disc just, just pops. It's an, it's kind of a, it morphs into it. Well, my back bothered me for X number of days or weeks. And then it was down my leg to my thigh and now my all the way to my foot and my leg bothers me much, much more than my back does. Okay, that's the usual story for a herniated disc. So that that guy or gal that comes in with a foot drop, at some point in time, they had that back pain. They probably had that true sciatica pain, the pain down the leg. But vast majority, uh ninety well above ninety five percent of people I see with spine problems, cervical, lumbar, r rarely thoracic, 
have something besides pain associated with it. That's the primary motivator. So some some definitions. When you're talking foot drop, that's because the the disc between the lower lumbar and the upper the sacrum is pressing on a nerve that controls the ability to raise the foot. Is that right? That is that is correct. If you look look at the spinal cord and the nerves within the spine, it, the analogy is like a fiber optic cable. You've got one big cable, but millions and millions of individual lines, fibers inside of it, microfibers, and they all have a job to do. And their job is a two-way street. Signals go down to the muscles. And for example, the L5, the fifth lumbar nerve root, is the one that helps bring the toes up, point them towards your nose. And if that nerve is irritated enough, the signals don't go there and you end up with a foot drop. And the other way of the street is it that nerve tells your brain how your foot is feeling. Uh, so, and those signals are interrupted or just because of nerve irritation. It's like a, like a short circuit in the nerve. It's as if it's a wire that the insulation has been worn out and the information isn't transmitted accurately or effectively. So you do electrical work around your house. <laughs> no, <laughs> electric and electric and plumbing. No, I'll, I'll drywall. I'll do all that stuff. So, but I won't do things. Things that those things will kill you. I'm not going to do that. So, so what are the most common causes of back pain? You know, this is where it's nice to have. You know, whatever. Forty-one years uh, since I got out of PT school, I, I I've, I've kind of lived through the entire evolution of the just the natural history of back pain. Up until about the late 80s, early 90s, when you'd sit down and interview a patient with back pain, whether it's first time, acute, or chronic, the first question was, what, what happened? What did you do to make this develop? And every patient racks their brain. It's human nature. Well, gee, I don't know. I you know, crashed my bike when I was 10, or I played football in junior high. And, but then you realize we see as many construction workers as we see office workers with these type of, you know, statistically yes. across the ages. And with the advent of MRIs, it became obvious that the discs in the spine, uh, particularly lumbar in the low back, the healthiest they're ever going to be is the day you're born. And the way I describe it to patients is as soon as you get on your, on your hind legs and start walking around, they're like treads on a new car's tires. They're going to wear down. So are you recommending and, that we crawl more? <laughs> we should stay on. You know, if if if, every, if we all went to all fours, I'm out of a job. I mean, I don't, <laughs> Sorry, didn't want to promote I get, that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get too many golden retrievers in my office. I don't get much of that. But. Well, that's, you know, they have hip problems, so yeah. <laughs> they have hip problems. They go to my partners. Yeah, exactly. But but the but the thing is, as far and the other thing we started realizing with the advent of MRIs, uh, particularly from the early to mid '90s on. And really, in the last 10 years with DNA mapping... Um, Wait, an orthopedic surgeon is talking about DNA mapping? Can you believe this? No, but, just but, but please it. say it. I love it when you talk that way. <laughs> yeah, that is... Uh, the thing is, is um, discs degenerate at a different rate than everybody. And, and if we go back to the tires on, the new tire, tires on a new car analogy, I tell patients that some people get Michelins and some people get retreads. <laughs> And and the family history with this, and I'll, uh, since she's not here, I'll, I'll use her as an example. My wife is one of 10 kids, and from her mother's side of the family, um, uh, half of her siblings have had back surgery done, and she, fortunately, is in the other half that have not. And if you look at their MRIs just side by side, it looks like a family photo because they all... Look, all the ones that have been that have had surgery done, they are, and these are young, healthy. They are the all-American family, in my opinion. So there are some factors that you cannot really moderate. You can't keep, as it stands now, you cannot keep a disc from degenerating more quickly if it is a biologic thing from you know from the hereditary side. So Tim, and, and I mean, if, it, if it, assuming it's not the genetic kind, if we were to set about the task of saying, hmm, I'd really like to cause back pain in myself, uh, assuming mm-hmm. I didn't have that genetic predisposition, how would I go about the task of doing that? The, the most effective, and I'm, I'm going to, uh, this may be unfair, I may, I may flip that question. 
how can you decrease your risk uh-huh. of developing that? And, you know, granted, there's good data that, uh, well, we know, number one, that smoking uh, is the one environmental factor that makes discs degenerate more quickly, wow. they deteriorate more quickly. There's a beautiful study, I believe, one of the Scandinavian countries about 20 years ago, just elegant and simple. They found multiple sets of identical twins where one smoked and the other one didn't and did MRIs of their lumbar spine. You don't have to know anything about MRIs to see that there was a difference between the two. So that is the one environmental factor. There's there's some evidence, pretty good evidence, that if you are in a an occupation with sustained vibration, you, know, you, you drive a bulldozer, you run a jackhammer, um, to some degree, over-the-road truckers, there's always been that, that sense, but it in that case, it's probably more related to, you know, sitting position puts more pressure on the discs than anything else. So more than standing. But, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, more than standing. Particularly, you know, standing, um, the spine is very motion dependent. The, the motion is lotion encouragement when it comes to patients. <laughs> I tell them, you know, if, if it hurts, you know, don't, you know, because in the old days, that's what we told people. It was... You go back to the 70s, 80s, if a back was really painful, we tell patients, just go to bed. You know, bed to bathroom, yes. you know, don't do anything else and all that. And unfortunately, it was a very effective treatment for the doctor because patients wouldn't call them. They, they felt better, but they lost endurance. They lost flexibility. Uh, they lost, you know, uh, you, you just dug them a deeper hole for every day you left them. So and, are, is this so, rage of standing desks actually good for backs? Yes, I think we're just scratching the surface. Um, there's a couple big employers, two or three big, big employers in our area that uh, have a real white collar corporate um, uh, population, and in that, in that, uh, those corporations, there are more and more executives that I'm seeing that have the adjustable height desks, and some of them will um, they will sit for a while, then they'll raise the desk and stand for a while. Uh, they so varying positions you know, makes a makes a significant difference. If you have someone that has a back pain problem, um, the best thing they can be doing is to try to keep moving. It, it's, sometimes my hardest patients, there's a big telemarketing firm here in our area, and they are at their desk for four hours in the morning. They go to lunch four hours in the afternoon, and they're at that desk with a headset on hour mm-hmm. after hour. And, it's harder for them to work than it is for somebody stocking shelves in a grocery store, putting widgets in boxes Got in a factory that's able to move so, around. Tim, so, Tim, how do exercise, diet, and weight affect back pain? Without question. Um, oh, gosh, 50 years of literature. So the safest, most effective, time-honored, proven again and again, uh, means of managing back pain. Uh, it's, I, I tell patients, once you've developed it, it's, you know, there's a difference between good relatives and bad relatives. You know, good relatives tell you they're coming, they come for a while, then they leave before it gets too late. And bad relatives just show up unannounced and they won't leave. Uh, that's kind of what chronic, subacute and chronic back pain gets into. But what you really have to preach to people with that, with that predicament, You've got to get in as good a shape as you possibly can. It is the most effective way of managing it. Words like fix, cure, normal. Once you've gotten into that you know, six months or more where it's just continuing on, it doesn't mean you're just, you're just cursed with it for the rest of your life, but it's going to be a ball and chain. You're likely going to have to carry it around and try to keep it to a, as low a level of intensity as you can exercise and frankly you know we used to tell people well you shouldn't run you can't jump you can't play golf can't do time honestly it really doesn't matter what you do you just do whatever you enjoy doing and what seems to work the best and because there is no cookie cutter approach to this everybody's different so if they can do it it's all right for them Mm -hmm. to do if they can physically yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, there. When when I uh, started my practice here in 1992, there's a big seven mile road race here in, in Davenport every July, and that was back in the day. If if I'd operated on anybody, I did back surgery on them. I said, you know, and if they were avid runners, I said, I'm sorry, you know, I got to play bad cop, but your running days are over. 
And that was the conventional wisdom, you know, through the early to mid nineties. And now, and every year, every year I'd run that race and my patients were beating me, the people I'd operated on. And some of them would find me and they, they trash talk me when they passed me, you know, cause I told them don't, don't run. And they're, they, patients taught me, no, if, if you can do it, if you can do it, then you should do it. So it is not a very practical, it is, yeah, it doesn't happen to, you know, for everybody, but um, the likelihood of doing something like that to the point of further harm or damage is low. You know, if, if, if there's pain that stops you in your tracks, then, you know, that's that's Mother Nature's two-by-four saying you really are, are pushing this too much. But if you're sore that night or the next day, and then it eases off after that. Okay, you Not just so found bad. out what your limits are. You know, it so. makes me think, uh, Tom, of thinking about our foot specialist who said depression hates a moving target. Yes. It sounds like back pain does too. Yes. I, Same thing. It's very good. Oh, yeah. So in, I want to... In fact, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, our culture has really embraced technology, smartphones, computer screens. Have the habits that have built up around these contributed to any back pain that you see? Yeah, I, I I think that's that's pretty inescapable. I can't say that there is just overwhelming um, data, you know, the good studies and and evidence to to say it's a fact. Uh, it, it's it's in a way it's analogous to you know kids going back to school and backpacks are going to be a problem. Well, there are some data that says yeah, they're too, if they're too heavy or don't fit right, that could be an issue. But the um, like the, the things prolonged sitting, I tend to see more people with neck, upper back, sure. shoulder blade area symptoms from that. But you know the spine is the spine. What I'm telling them is just a it's a different version of what I'm telling the lumbar spine patients. You know, okay, if you keep that computer screen in front of you, you know, you may want to raise it up a little bit and then lower it down. You may want set a little egg timer on your desk every 45 minutes or so. You'll find where your over under is. When that goes off, stand up, stretch a little bit, start moving around. That static positioning, the spine does not like static positioning, meaning you stay in one position for a length of time. And then when you go to change, it's you know, when you get up in the morning, get out of bed, and that first 10, 15 minutes may not be very pretty. Um, well, Tim, uh, speaking uh, of getting out, getting out of bed and taking a break uh, from uh, sitting still, we're going to do that right now. <laughs> we'll be right back after the break with more of Dr. Tim Malay on back pain here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with Dr. Doctor and our guest, orthopedic spine surgeon, Dr. Tim Malay. You know, Tim, we, we always try to get everything from an authentically Catholic perspective. That's why we're here. I know our listeners would love to know a little bit about you and your approach to pain and your Catholic approach to pain in the spine. So share some of that with us. Yeah, there, um, uh, it's not a life or death issue fortunately, uh, that I have to deal with, but it is always a quality of life issue at mm. least. And there is often need to have a conversation with a patient about, um, I don't want to say surrender, I say more of acceptance. And also, depending on how the patient is, is receiving you know, the, the information as we have our, our conversation, they're trying to, to, to bring up just the topic of redemptive suffering. Mm. I mean, if this is something that is, it's going to be yours. It's more than just a rock in your shoe. It's, it's going to be there on a daily basis. It's, it's not going to leave. And the, the, the question you have to, you have to do is, are you going to live with it? Are you going to live around it? Yeah, both of those are, you know, a, par, a part and parcel of how they deal with this. And um, so it's, you try not to cross the line into, you know, football coach halftime pep talk, but it because it's a it's a process that people you know will see and and if I if I can give them any hope, you know, the uh, take the patient that has just chronic low back pain. There there there's somewhat of a bell shaped curve that uh, the likelihood of having it tends to reach a peak. Uh, anywhere from the mid-30s to the mid-40s or so. And then beyond 50 years of age, 
it's not as likely to be as painful or as much of a problem. You mean if we've made it past 50, we're we're Uh, safe? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, on your 50th birthday, on your 50th birthday, you wake up, you feel like you did in high school, right? (laughs) That would be a lie. Um, But what I I tell him is that, you know, as time goes by, if we can, most importantly, if it doesn't become a surgical problem, or if you stay away from surgeons that don't have a good reason to operate on you, your likelihood of getting better will be in your favor. It, it, it doesn't go away, but the frequency, the severity of the symptoms becomes less and less as time goes by. And um, that, 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 that's a good lesson for, for doctors as well, is you know patience and perseverance and knowing that there's, there's a reason that these things happen. And um, it, it's very, very difficult, obviously, for patients to... Um, to understand that when they're in the midst of it, but it can be a uh, um, it can be a, a a good talking point for them, just trying to get them through. That's beautiful uh, that, that you so. actually do that with them, Tim. Now back to hardcore medicine question. You know, as you're helping these patients cope with their pain, you know, I've read that 50 to 60% of patients say that their back pain could be helped by narcotics or physical therapy or chiropractic care. You know, what is the relative place of each of those in treating back pain? Yeah, there's a a very, I'm not a big fan of algorithms uh, and protocols, but the one that works the best as far as trying to educate a patient is you do the simplest thing first and you don't move on to the next step unless you unless the the previous step has really not helped that much so go back to my desert island analogy you know <laughs> number number 1 is say okay if we don't do anything if it it might get better on its own so you give um, patients a prescription and- to go to bora bora for six weeks. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I should have a travel agency, but I don't. Yes. But the, uh, um, so that's, that's number one. If we okay. keep our hands off you, you know, just let you and mother nature go toe to toe on this, you, you might win. You might well win with this. And then, that's a hard sell. When somebody hurts that bad, that, yeah. that is a hard sell. Secondly, um, yeah, just, uh, because of experience and, uh, uh, mostly because of experience and, and, uh, awareness, physical therapy um, that is, is really, really helpful. Now, every step along the way, this algorithm, I tell patients, is this next step going to help? We don't know. And if it does help, how much and for how long, we don't know. But if we're not getting better, we're not making headway, we should do that. And physical therapy, I, the advantage they have is they can customize. You know, they, I describe my patients like snowflakes. From a distance, they look the same. You get up close, no two are alike. And everybody will have a different response to therapy. So the first few visits with PT is a little bit of a fact-finding mission. You know, what's working, what isn't working. And that's when I start laying the groundwork for the long haul, saying this is not going to be an overnight success and the, the the hard sell with patients, the hard thing for them to accept is it may take several weeks. It may take a few months before you really feel like you're making progress with this. But the potential downside, the potential harm with PT is is nil. Well, not nil, but they, they don't hurt people. They, they don't harm people. And it seems that and over that, the past decades, PT, physical therapy, has become more hands-on than it was when I was in med school in the late 80s. Is, is that a correct perception? Oh, without, without question. When I worked as a PT back in the 70s to 82 when I started medical school, um, I, I called it the fake and bake and freeze and please days. You know, we'd heat them up and rub them down. And, yes. you know, there, there really wasn't any creativity or any activity involved in it. So now, yes, it, it truly is a dynamic uh, process, not a passive process. Mm-hmm. And, and the important thing is not what they do to the patient. It's what they give the patient to do on their own. And and that's there are two difficult uh, parts for the patient. One is finding the time, maybe the copay, whatever it may be, to go to therapy two or three times a week for a while, and then 
doing their homework, just getting them to believe that, okay, this exercise program is going to be like brushing your teeth. You've got to do this every day. And those who do, they're direct correlation. Those who stick with the program that's working for them are going to do better in the long run. If we're not in the next, you know, we go to medication next, and by and large, the the bedrock of that is going to be the anti-inflammatories, the, the ibuprofens and, and uh, naprosins, Tylenol, acetaminophen, you know, the over-the-counters, uh, the prescription arthritis medicines, Motrin and uh, well, naprosin and the Motrin uh, um, uh, as well. There's about two dozen anti-inflammatories, and, and it's kind of like trying on shoes. You know, you may wear a size 10, but one ten is going to feel better than all the others. But who has time to go through all of that? So there's two or three that I uh, tend to have. Uh, I've found, you know, they're, they're my test drives to see what happens with that. Beyond that, you get into the the medications that affect don't really affect the inflammation. They affect the the central nervous system, the, the narcotics, muscle relaxants, sedatives, things like that. And they're really not managing the inflammation. They're just changing the way your brain processes that information. And, and the, you know, the, with all the, the press lately about the opioid epidemic, and, and certainly there's, there's impact in that. Uh, the, biggest, the biggest factor in, in medical care is going to be uh, back pain predominantly. Yes. And, uh, so, so are you know, opioids are used far less than they used to be, Tim? Without a doubt. And is that without a good a thing? It is a good thing. It is a good thing. I think, you know, this is uh, the pendulum, just like it does with everything else that has any kind of political impact. The pendulum swings quite a ways in both ways. And you go back to 15, 10, 15 years ago, you know, we're told we are under treating pain. And unfortunately, with the perfect storm that happened, that was when OxyContin became available. And yes. We're under treating pain. And if we don't get our pain scores looking better on paper, we're, right. you know, we're, we're not doing our job. And now it's gone the other way. We're over treating pain. So, so, so Tim, it's something. Be another 10 years. It, where does this fit in? And I can tell you that both physical therapy and chiropractic have been godsends in my life at different times. In fact, I'm seeing both of them periodically every year. But what is your understanding, your belief of where a chiropractor can be helpful in chiropractic oh, manipulation, where also DOs, doctors of osteopathy, also learn some of the same kind of manipulation skills? Exactly. Uh, first off, as far as the, the osteopath are concerned, I have six partners that are DOs. Some of the best spine surgeons I've worked with and have known over the last 30 years are DOs, but basically from a musculoskeletal standpoint, there's really, it's seamless. It, yes. it, it's just seamless. Mm -hmm. really not an issue with that. Um, uh, here's your, your fun fact for the, for the day. I work in the town that is the birthplace of chiropractic. That's right. Yeah. Palmer College of Chiropractic yes. is here. And it is, I mean, you, you can't go three blocks without a chiropractor's office. <laughs> and and I want to, you know, I'll give credit where credit's due with this. I have not been ever or and will not be just that anti-chiropractor um, individual. There is data that if you have acute back pain and you see a chiropractor, the duration of that episode, maybe the severity of that episode can be decreased quicker with chiropractic, but that's also true with physical therapy. You know, chiropractors will call it manipulation. Physical therapists will call it mobilization. Uh, there are differences in, certainly in philosophy, in vocabulary. But what I tell patients is, I don't, whether it's physical therapy, chiropractic, acupuncture, massage therapy, inversion tables, whatever Shaquille O'Neal selling on TV, whatever it is, <laughs> I, I, I tell them there, there's three criteria that are important. One, when you do it, you feel better. Two, it doesn't empty your bank account. And three, it doesn't, it doesn't leave a scar. That beats what I do, you know? And so if you don't worry about who gets the credit and you have a patient who gets better with minimal to no risk, that's a win. So, mm. um, you know, one of my, one of my best friends here in town for the last 20 years, is a chiropractor, and we learned a long time ago that we just can't talk shop. We just, we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different vocabulary, different understanding, but we see each other's patients quite frequently, actually. So uh, it is a, 
it's a triage system that should it, it's it's in a way I, it would be like what I would call spinal subsidiarity. We're going down to the lowest <laughs> level of ten to try to, to try to you know because that's where things get. Hey, there's our authentically Catholic it, perspective. It is well done. Mm-hmm. In church teaching on there subsidiarity. So so Tim, <laughs> when is surgery necessary on the spine? Because I've seen data on way too many spine surgery cases being done in certain locations and for bad reasons. Yes, the, the, the data is, frankly, very frustrating and, and, and uh, uh, kind of disheartening um, to, to many of us in this business. There seems to be a direct correlation between the number of spine surgeons per 100,000 and uh, the number of spine surgeries done. The more spine surgeons you have, the more spine surgery gets done. And it's, it's unfortunately, it looks like like a contest when you look at the statistics and it shouldn't be that way. And uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, uh, the, the data was that 1% of Americans will have back surgery at some point in their life. Okay. 1% doesn't seem like much, but then you're looking at today's statistics over 3 million people. Yes. And that, and that still means that and then you have to take into context that, the uh, U.S. population, the surgery, spine surgery rate in the U.S. is about 10 times greater than it is in uh, other developed countries, particularly in the European countries. Suggesting sort of a uh, cultural component, isn't it? It is a cultural component, you know, and, and I, in a way, I look at it as c- kind of maybe the downside of access to, mm-hmm. you know, if, if uh, you go, a friend of mine uh, that is a, a spine surgeon in Sweden, um, the average waiting time for surgery there for spinal stenosis, or really for herniated disc, spinal stenosis, typical stuff that we see here, it's 18 to 24 months sometimes. And uh, particularly for herniated discs, uh, a lot of the people cancel the surgery because oh. after about six months or they more, better. they get better. Well, it's funny, better. you know, I, I'm a gynecologist and I think some of the most mm-hmm. angry patients I've ever taken care of are those that I tried to convince I didn't need to operate on them for their pelvic pain. But exactly. maybe it's an American Western cultural thing. We we really want something definitively done, don't we? You know, Chris, I, I think you've nailed it. That that is some of the most difficult conversations I have to have with someone is a patient who just wants it fixed. I want it to go away, hmm. and um, that is a very it's a, it's a necessary conversation. It is also a difficult conversation. Mm. And I'm not a big fan of the, you know, walk in the room, have the conversation. Well, I can't help you. You know, you're going to have to go somewhere else. I, I very often, I'll tell those patients, you know what, let's go, let's both go away and think about this. Come back in a week. You know, because I'm going to have more questions for you. You're going to have a lot more questions for me. But I'll tell them, I really don't think I'm going to change my mind. I just want to make sure that you understand what we're talking about with this. Because there's, there's, uh, you know, get your hopes up. And there is not a fit, as I said previously, fix, cure, normal are not operative terms in, in the majority of these cases. So what are the, the best reasons to have back surgery, spine surgery done? Right. Um, four criteria that I use with patients, and, and two of them are questions that the patient answers, and two of them are questions that I answer. One, um, the patient says, my quality of life is no longer acceptable. Uh, we're not talking life, death, paralysis. We're just talking quality of life. Okay. Two. Secondly, yeah, secondly, the patient uh, says, uh, if we ask them, has any other treatment so far helped every other possible treatment no has not helped enough okay Okay, so we check those two boxes and my questions are is there a reasonable chance of a good outcome no not perfect not uh, i don't even like the word success success is what a surgeon says you know satisfaction is a better word so what are the odds that the patient when the dust settles after surgery will say i do it again Mm -hmm. that was a good decision and then the fourth criteria is do the benefits that we hope to get outweigh the risks that go with it. And, and if we bat a thousand on those four questions, we get all four of them, you know, affirmative, then it's a reasonable decision to a reasonable uh, decision to, per- to proceed with an operation. What are the most common procedures you do? You know, it, it really the most common um, nowadays, when I came here in the early nineties, it was about six. If you look at the two most common procedures, it was a herniated lumbar disc 
and lumbar spinal stenosis, which is a more of a degenerative process, just gradual narrowing of the nerve canal in the lower back. Um, now, here we are 27 years later, it is just the opposite, 60% stenosis, 40% lumbar disc. But that's because people live longer than they used to, and they don't buy rocking chairs and put them on the porch anymore. They got <laughs> things to do. And um, so, you know, the... How about spinal with, fusions? Do you do many of those? Yeah, did did one today, big, pretty good size one today, um, about a about a five about a five hour case, I guess. But and those are now my practice is about half of the surgeries I do involve a spinal fusion, and those are um, not as common as the decompression surgeries, the ones that are for the disc. Uh, done for for disc and stenosis. A fusion surgery is typically done for. Um, uh, what we would term instability, meaning that there, for example, the lady we operated on today has a, a degenerative scoliosis, a curvature that we had to try to straighten a bit. Uh, uh, there is a, another entity called spondylolisthesis, which we all will just say slip because it, it's where one vertebra is moving too much on another vertebra. And you have to, it's like playing Jenga with the spine. You have yes. to stabilize it to keep it from from uh, becoming more unstable. Tim, but we have a minute left. What mm -hmm. source can you recommend that patients go to to get reliable information about back pain? Oh, I'll make a pitch for the North American Spine Society, which is a misnomer because when you go to their annual meeting, it is multinational. It is uh it's the international kind of the, the, the oracle for spine stuff. And the website for that is spine.org. Oh, nice. And there, there is a wonderful patient education portal there that has links to very good um, materials in layman's terms mm. and also links to outside uh, uh, sources as well. Uh, Mayo and Case Western, uh, Hopkins, places like that. The, the, the information is out there. Tim Belay, thank you very much for being with us today on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back to wrap it up after a brief break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Uh, Tom, I know everyone wants to know. They, they've stuck their neck out, so to speak, because they want to know the, uh, the answer to the trivia question. So the human spine is composed of vertebrae from the neck to the tailbone. The human spine, uh, cervical spine contains seven vertebrae. So yes, our neck has seven bones that make it up. So a, a giraffe, so much longer than any human neck I've ever seen. You'd think it must have 20, maybe 15 vertebrae. Who knows? How many does it have? Wouldn't you know, God put the same number of vertebrae in a giraffe as a human. Seven vertebrae in the neck of a giraffe. Who'd have thought? So there you have it. Incredibly flexible. Where would we be without vertebrae? <laughs> <laughs> We'd be in a lot more pain. So uh, I think there were a number of great points from uh, from Tim Millay. Uh, number one, don't look for a quick fix to back pain. Most of it's going to go away on its own with normal activity. My favorite thing he said was motion is lotion. <laughs> that was good. I think that should be a bumper sticker. Sounds like Muhammad Ali. That's right. Motion, <laughs> motion. is lotion. But, you know, and once again, wh whether we're talking about high blood pressure or something else, he said, exercise, don't smoke, control your weight. Those are the best things you could do to prevent. Yeah, amazing that the, the thing you can do to speed up your discs, the discs between the, the vertebrae from uh, shrinking uh, smoking will shrink them faster than anything else and bring you pain. And how just genetically driven that shrinkage of the discs is. Yeah, that is remarkable. I mean, this idea that um, some people are destined maybe to have back problems just genetically, which fits with, I think, what we're learning across so many specialties in medicine is that, you know, there are these genetic things that if you combine that with a certain environment, it's going to cause a problem. How important it is to try to stand at work and not sit at a desk all day long, that that's actually more stressful for the spine than standing. Is yeah, sitting. So now we can say depression and pain don't like a moving target. They don't. Boy, we're just adding it up on our list here. We should need to get a billboard with all these sayings on it. And, you know, the last thing that, that he, he really left me with was this idea that, that um, from an authentically Catholic perspective, what a great surgeon he is. But he's talking to patients about, you know, sometimes people don't get better. 
you may have to surrender this pain or accept that this pain is part of you um, and that there is redemptive value in suffering. Sometimes we have to feel the pain. But as Catholics, as Christians, there's something good we can do with that. Uh, I also like the fact he reiterated there's really no place for chronic back pain for treating with narcotics. Mm. Yeah, good point. Uh, they lead to a lot of uh, addiction for something that just covers over the pain but doesn't help the problem at all. Yeah, and the idea that keep it simple, the simple things first, uh, that a lot of back pain is going to get better by just taking a trip to the beach. And that if um, if you don't care who gets the credit, he he is not, as a orthopedic surgeon, saying that we can't be helped by physical therapists and chiropractors because we can, I know firsthand. You know, so we should probably remind our listeners, if you have questions that you'd like us to address on Dr. Doctor, be it back pain or pelvic pain or skin problems, we'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with us on our Facebook page, on our website at Redeemer Radio. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to tackle the questions that you'd like to have answered. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite him or her to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.